So I was, um, I was listening to a biography podcast recently, and I heard the story of a man named Eugen Sandow. Eugen is a weird name. It looks like Eugene, but it's German, so it's Eugen. Um, and Eugen Sandow was a Victorian-era bodybuilder. He, uh, he actually um, was famous as a showman for doing feats of strength, and he was called the perfect man because of his physique. But the way that he became famous is actually an interesting story. Uh, in 1889, at the Loyal, in London at the Royal Aquarium Music Hall, those things don't seem to go together to me, so I have to read it. A strong man, a different strong man, calling himself Samson, was putting on a show where every night he would, in, he would challenge the audience, can you send me somebody up to the stage who can best me in, in various feats of strength? And no one could ever do it. Every night people tried and no one could. Well, the prize, if you could ever best Samson, was a thousand pounds, which was quite a lot of money at that time. Um, and then it was also that you would win the title of the strongest man in the world. When Eugen Sandow heard about this, he was living in Germany, because he's German. He heard about it. He went to London immediately. And the night that he arrived at the show, Samson stands up, and he makes the same challenge to the audience. Can anyone best me in feats of strength? And you know that no one's been able to do it, so the audience must have been in anticipation and expectation, wondering, can anybody really do this? Is it even possible? And Eugen stands up. Now, something you should know about Eugen is he was not a really tall man. He was about five foot, five foot nine. Uh, Samson, on the other hand, was well over six feet. He was a mountain of a man. So Eugen looked small next to him. But not only that, Eugen came this evening wearing an evening suit. <laughs> and he had a wispy little mustache. And he wore a monocle. And as he walked across the stage to accept the challenge, he sort of tripped a little bit. And the audience chuckles. And they're thinking, who is this guy? Really? This guy is going to challenge? But as he accepts the bet, he shakes hands with Samson in a move of spectacular showmanship. All in one motion, he rips off his shirt and his coat, and he reveals who he really is. He's a, he's a, bus, he's a muscle, he's a, what am I looking for, bodybuilder? Yeah, he's a bodybuilder. His physique is amazing. And the crowd sees who he is, and they go wild. They just go crazy because it's such a good move. Oh, it was a marvelous reveal. Well, our gospel reading today is the story of a marvelous reveal, of a grand reveal. It's the story of the baptism of Jesus. And in ancient times, the church read this story of God revealing who he really was as Jesus came out of the water and we see the Trinity the church would read this story, and they went wild about it. In fact, so wild that they declared a feast day to celebrate it. It's one of the oldest feasts of the church. It's from before there was Advent, um, before even the church was universally celebrating Christmas on the same day. The whole church celebrated this appearance of God, this revelation of who God was in the life of Jesus and all that it meant. They celebrated it with a feast, and they originally called the feast the Theophany, but it's the feast that we now know as the Epiphany. It's this feast today. This word Epiphany, if you're not sure what I'm saying, it's printed on the front of your bulletin. This word Epiphany is from a Greek word that means appearance, as in a sudden appearance. 
as in something wasn't there, and then suddenly it was there. And it's a word that's used in Scripture. It's used to describe how God appeared among us as the person, the man, Jesus Christ, but not just appeared. He appeared with a purpose. He appeared to save us. And in our epistle reading today, from Paul's letter to Titus, he actually uses this word epiphany, which is translated appearance or appear. He uses that word three times, and I want to look at one of those uses just now. Uh, Titus 3, 4 through 5a. When the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. So God appeared, he epiphanied, he came close in order to save us. That was the reason for it. And that salvation that he brought is something that we still desperately need because we live in a broken world full of strong men with broken hearts. We have strong men in our hearts. We live facing challenges, constantly calling us out in this broken world. We face the challenge of identity. Where am I going to get my worth from? What makes me valuable? Is it my job? Is it the things I own? Is it my social status? We face the challenge of provision. Where am I going to get the things that I need in order to live day to day? And sometimes those things are tangible, and sometimes those things are not tangible. We face the challenge of security. Who is going to keep me safe? And what about the moments when I don't really feel safe? We face the challenge of death. Why do our bodies grow old? Why do we suffer? Why can we feel our bodies falling apart? We face the challenge of evil. Can it even be overcome? What about the evil that actually lives in our own hearts? We face the challenge of widespread destruction, of wars, of hunger, of environmental catastrophe. And these challenges all ask, can somebody step up and defeat us? And that's why we need salvation. And those are the challenges that Jesus faces down, that he faced down when he appeared among us. And as we read this gospel story alongside our epistle reading today, we're going to look at both texts, I hope we will look anew upon the appearance of God our Savior who came to face down these challenges. And I hope that like our spiritual fathers and mothers, we will go wild over the appearance of God our Savior. As we walk through these passages of Scripture, I'm going to give you three E's this morning, because it's Epiphany. Um, we're going to look at the expectation of God our Savior. We're going to look at the Epiphany of God our Savior. And then we're going to look at the heirs, H-E-I-R-S, but the H is silent. <laughs> Happy Epiphany. Uh, we're going to look at the heirs of God our Savior, okay? So let's start by looking at the expectation of God our Savior. It's going to be in our gospel reading, Luke 3. And much like that night at the Royal Aquarium Music Hall, um, our story in the Gospels opens with a crowd that's in anticipation and expectation. It's buzzing with excitement. Look at the Gospel reading, verse 15. The people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. They're wondering, is John our Savior? But John only increases this anticipation with what he says. Verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, 
But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, John is, John is the ultimate prophet. And his baptism that he's giving people in the Jordan River, he's actually acting out an Old Testament prophecy that God would wash his people Israel with water. But this Old Testament prophecy had two parts to it. The first part was that God would wash his people with water, but the second part was that God would put his own Holy Spirit inside these people. And John says, someone greater than me is coming because John knows that when he baptizes people, it's just a picture. It itself is just a prophecy because he's not actually able to give them the Holy Spirit. Someone mightier has to be coming. Someone mightier who can wash his people clean and give them the Holy Spirit. And I imagine that when John said this, it's going to be somebody bigger and better than me. That only increased the crowd's expectations. And they're probably thinking, just like that crowd in London, can somebody really do this? Could someone that strong really come? And some probably hoped, but some probably doubted. And John speaks to this division as well. If you look in verse 17 there, he actually says um, that the world is going to be divided about the one who is coming. And that the one who is coming is going to bring all of history to its climax. This is the expectation of God our Savior. And into this expectation walks a 30-year-old Jewish carpenter from Galilee. And the crowd probably thinks, who is this guy? Even as they hear John announce him, even as he wades into the water, they're probably thinking, really? This guy? And I think some of us actually feel that same way. I think maybe just a little bit, even if we really have faith, there's still a little bit of nagging doubt sometimes, just a bit, when we face these challenges calling us out in life and we're told that Jesus is somehow the answer. Sometimes we still feel like, really? Jesus? He's going to solve this problem that's so real in my life? But Jesus lets himself be lowered into the water by John. And when he comes up out of the water, we experience the epiphany of God our Savior. This is the moment that God reveals himself. Look at verses 21 and 22. They say, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God pulls back the veil and reveals who he is. And throughout history, the people of God have gone wild. God the Son is standing in the river praying. And God the Father speaks his words of love over him. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And God, the Holy Spirit, descends upon him, anointing him as the Messiah for his earthly ministry. Let's look at this moment a little more deeply. The end of verse 21 says that when all this happened, it starts it off by saying, the heavens were opened. Now, this is a key in scripture. When you see this, it means that you're going to get to look beyond the immediate physical reality, you're going to see into the spiritual reality. People are getting to witness an eternal heavenly reality that's usually hidden from sight. 
this loving, life-giving relationship that they actually get to see between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is something that's actually always happening at every single moment. Every moment of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, this loving relationship is happening. As Jesus touches the man with leprosy, as he rides on a donkey into Jerusalem, as he confronts the Pharisees in the temple, always in every single one of those moments, the Father was speaking over him, you are my beloved son. In every single one of those moments, the Holy Spirit was ministering his anointing to Jesus. As Jesus carries the cross that he will die on, even as he quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he probably quoted the rest of it, which was very hopeful. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quoted as he died. And especially as Jesus rose gloriously from the dead, God the Father was speaking over him, with you I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit was descending upon him, bringing life to him. This is the constant life of the Trinity. Yet here we see it. As Jesus comes out of the water and he stands praying and the heavens are open for just a moment, we see it revealed. We see God, our Savior, appear. That is the epiphany of God, our Savior. Now, if you have your bulletins, would you actually turn to the front cover of your bulletin for me? We see a picture on the front cover. This is an icon of the baptism of Jesus. And if you look closely, you can see all the elements of the story. John is on the left there. The Father's glory is depicted as shining from the top, but the Father is out of sight because you don't show the Father. The Spirit is descending in the form of a dove that's really tiny, but you can kind of see it if you get real close. And to the right, there are actually angels who are ready to bring Jesus out of the water and begin ministering to him as he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, right, to fast. So that's the whole picture. But something that I find really beautiful is that the church has always seen this story of God's appearance not only as a picture of the Trinity's revelation, but as a picture of our own salvation. And the reason is this. When God saves us, he takes us, and he makes us stand where Jesus stands in this picture. And this is the third point. We become the heirs, the inheritors. We become the heirs of God our Savior. I want you to keep looking at this picture, or at least keep it in front of you as you listen. And as you do, I'm going to read to you again some of the words from our epistle reading, from Paul's letter to Titus. It goes like this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Epiphany, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God's appearance was so that we might become heirs. We become adopted as children of God, our Father, and we become those who receive an inheritance as children. We become heirs. Scripture says we become co-heirs with Christ. And that, and that means that everything that is Christ's by his nature as the Son of God, everything that belongs to Jesus by his nature as the Son of God is now given to us as a gracious 
gift that we don't deserve. It's given to us as our own inheritance. And so we have a place in that eternal picture of the loving father, the beloved child, the life-giving spirit. And our place in that picture is Jesus's place. And can you see now why the epiphany, this appearance of God, our Savior, this appearance of the true perfect man, the Son of God, Jesus, just made the church go wild. It made them burst with joy. It made them declare a feast. Because by the grace of God, we can stand where Jesus stands. Because Jesus has appeared and he's answered every challenge ever issued by the strong men of this broken world. The challenge of provision, how will my needs be met? Will anyone be there to meet my needs? The challenge of security, who can possibly keep me safe? When you stand where Jesus stands, the Father says of you, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. In you, I am well pleased. He is going to meet your needs. He is going to take care of you. We face the challenge of identity. Where do I find my worth? You find your worth as a child of God. That's what he speaks over you. The challenge of evil that we see all around us and within us. The challenge of wars and hunger and catastrophe. And even the challenge of death that we feel in our bodies. When you stand where Jesus stands, the Holy Spirit anoints you with power and transforms you to overcome the evil in your own heart to empower you to help bring the kingdom of God into this world and fight evil in this world. The Holy Spirit descends upon you and anoints you and brings you the life of God himself. He brings life to your mortal dying body. Death will not have the last word when you stand where Jesus stands. And when you experience God's salvation... It's not just for one moment. That's just the heavens being pulled back so that you see it. This is the eternal picture of your life. Standing in the waters of your baptism, God speaking safety, identity, and healing over you, the Holy Spirit anointing and empowering you. Continually, every moment, you are an heir, and this is your inheritance. Now, this is what salvation looks like, and it's really good news. And there are a few different ways that we can respond to this good news, depending on where we are in life. Perhaps you've never experienced the salvation of God. You've never received God's saving work in your life in the waters of baptism by faith in God, and you've never received the salvation that Jesus is offering to you, but you'd like to. You'd like to stand where Jesus stands. And you'd like to receive the love of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And if that's you, we would love to talk to you more about faith and what it means to follow Jesus. We would love to pray with you. Um, After quite a while, we're going to have a lot of stuff up here today, but eventually we're going to have communion. And during communion, we have prayer ministers that stand up here. And if this describes you, you haven't experienced God's salvation, but you want it. I would just invite you to come up here and speak with a prayer minister if you'd like to. Talk to them about where you're at. Let them pray with you. Or even more, you can find one of the leaders after the church service sometime. Get in touch with someone. Let them know you'd like to talk more about this. You'd like to receive prayer. You'd like to follow Jesus. 
Um, so Aaron, Aaron, Susan is over here. I would love to talk with you. Um, for others of you, you know the salvation of God in your life. You've been baptized. But God is calling you to embrace this particular image of salvation, of standing where Jesus stands and receiving the love of the Father and the anointing of the Spirit so that you can actually face down those challenges of identity and security and disaster. And if that's you, you have a couple options. You can also receive prayer from a prayer minister. But another thing you can do is during communion, before and after you take communion, definitely come up and take it. But before and after, you can actually just sit and look at this icon and just meditate on it and pray that God would help you to stand where Jesus stands, that God would help you to claim that inheritance that you have in Christ, to know the love of the Father and the power of the Spirit. And then for some of you, the best response to this story of God's epiphany might simply to be to join with the ancient church and to go wild, <laughs> to declare a feast, to celebrate the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior who has appeared and saved us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.